Live from CAP Radio in Sacramento, this is Insight. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. War is often measured by atrocious loss, from lives to livelihoods, a way of life rooted in familiar comfort that is ripped away beyond repair. In Ukraine, the death toll and diaspora at the hands of Russia cannot be ignored. But you can also understand the toll of war by what and who remains. Their stories capture the heart of what once was, as well as the drive to endure the painful costs of a war with no end in sight. Martin Kuz, is an independent journalist based in Sacramento. His father fled Ukraine following World War II, never able to return. Martin spent the past 12 months traveling to his father's homeland, first arriving in the days leading up to the invasion and then returning again in the summer during an all-out war that continues today. I spoke with Martin upon just landing back in California from his latest three-week reporting trip, this time in eastern Ukraine. We sat down and talked on Friday, which marked one year since the official start of the war. Given that you're an independent journalist, you're based in Sacramento with more than 30 years of experience as a journalist, you also wrote that the series of reporting that you've done in Ukraine for the past year, that no story has felt more personal than the war in Ukraine, which is your father's homeland. I'm curious with your experience as a journalist, yet with this very personal connection, how that shaped your approach to reporting on this war. I think in the case of the war in Ukraine, uh, my emphasis has been on the impact of ordinary Ukrainians. It hasn't been so much to look at what's happening with uh, officials or even, for that matter, the military. Uh, When I've covered war previously in Afghanistan, it revolved very much around what was happening with the U.S. military, what was happening with the Afghan military. And if I have one regret about my coverage of that war, It's that I didn't delve more deeply into the personal experiences of Afghans. And with this war, in part because of the family connection, and knowing that every Ukrainian feels the effect of the war, I wanted to try to capture some of those experiences and provide uh, readers with a bit of insight into what it's like to have war uh, upend your entire existence. Given that your first visit to Ukraine last year was in the days prior to the invasion, and then you returned in the summer of last year, and then you joined us on Insight, I mean, it's one thing to use hindsight, knowing what we know now and the unknowns of what we know now. But did you think the the Martin Coups of, of this time last year would be surprised that we're having this conversation about Ukraine today? Once Russian troops and tanks poured over the border on February 24th of last year, I was convinced, sadly, that we were in for a long slog. I don't think that's all that surprising, given that the support from the West has been strong, but it hasn't provided Ukraine with a decisive advantage on the battlefield. Effectively, you have a bloody stalemate. Ukraine has pushed back Russian forces in the east and the south, but we see now in the last several weeks uh, that the two sides are locked into this this struggle, this very violent struggle. And the biggest surprise at the start of the war clearly was the strength of the Ukrainian military and perhaps the incompetence of the Russian military. Both sides, I think there were uh, misconceptions on either side of that military scale. The Russian military was considered to be essentially invulnerable, 
unstoppable. The Ukrainian military was considered to be sort of ragtag and disorganized. What we have found instead is more or less the opposite. We have found an extremely effective fighting force in the Ukrainian military, and we have found a Russian military that really seems to seems at a loss when it comes to basic military strategy and have suffered catastrophic losses. But I think, unfortunately, in the calculus of Vladimir Putin, like Russian leaders before him, human life doesn't matter in Russia. And they simply are fighting a war that resembles World War I and World War II in that it's a war of attrition. They are simply feeding more bodies into the wood chipper, more Russian soldiers dying every single day. And knowing that that was likely to be Putin's approach, I'm not at all surprised, unfortunately, that we're sitting here a year later talking about the war again. Given that your focus were personal stories, intimate stories of daily lives of Ukrainians, at one point in your reporting journey last year, did you know that you needed to return for a third time this year in the new year? Once the invasion started last February, it became clear to me that this would be the most important story I had ever covered, and in some respects, perhaps the last story I'll ever cover. It feels to me, in a sense, that all my reporting in the years prior to 2022 led me to this point to try to bring whatever meager skills I have to bear on telling the story of Ukrainians caught uh, in the vice of war. And... It is, without a doubt, a personal sort of mission for me. And that is unlike anything I have really ever covered um, previously. I hope that I have brought empathy, compassion, heart to my reporting in the past of, of various subjects. But this, this connection with my father's homeland cuts so deeply for me and has become, uh, it's fair to say, it's all-consuming. It is what I focus on every single day, what I wake up thinking about, what I go to sleep thinking about. And I think it's, it's also a sense that this is the contribution that I can make, that this is uh, my effort to continue to tell these stories so that American audiences, Western audiences, don't forget the struggle and the suffering of everyday Ukrainians that goes on and on and on as long as this war continues. Given that you went three times in the span of 12 months, you know, in the days before the invasion to last summer, and you just returned for a third time, do you view each reporting trip as its own chapter? In a sense, yes. Um, the, the scale of the invasion, and even with all the intelligence that suggested the invasion would begin last February, I think most people were surprised that Putin went all in. Uh, he wasn't trying to bite off chunks of Ukraine. He was going for the whole country. Even if he wasn't sending tanks and troops into western Ukraine, the idea was to topple the uh, Zelensky administration and put in a puppet government. So at the outset, it's that this overwhelming force that swoops into Ukraine and you're simply trying to gain your bearings and tell the story of Ukrainians caught by surprise, even with the warnings, and how they are trying to acclimate in a circumstance in which there is no precedent. There isn't anything like war 
so that you can really be fully prepared for it. When I returned in the summer, at that point, the battle lines had more or less cohered. And so central Ukraine, for instance, and northern Ukraine had become more or less safe. And in and around Kyiv, the capital, you had uh, suburbs like Bucha and Irpin that had become notorious because the names of those towns uh, were synonymous with killing fields, with, with, with what I would consider to be Putin's war of genocide, where civilians were uh, gunned down simply for trying to leave the area. Civilians who had their hands up at the time that they were shot dead. And so I wanted to provide a sense of how those areas were attempting to endure even as the war continued and it appeared that their lives had stabilized to a degree. Going back now this month was an extension of the reporting in the summer but going to a part of the country that I hadn't visited previously which is eastern Ukraine, an area that continues to uh, be heavily bombarded by Russian forces uh, from across the border. And it was looking even more closely at this idea of how do people endure day to day when artillery is incoming and outgoing, when power is non-existent, when the only heat comes from a wood stove, when there is little, if any, uh, communication with the outside world. The deprivation in eastern Ukraine is extreme and as an extension of the reporting I had done previously, I wanted to try to uh, offer a bit of insight into how difficult the lives are for Ukrainians day to day, and also that attention spans in the West can be a little short, uh, and to say, look, you're still hearing artillery, you're still seeing missiles drop into a city like Kharkiv, which was about one and a half million people before the war began, the second largest city in Ukraine, now it's a city that's pitch dark at night, and in in the in the deprivation that people are experiencing, you do realize not only the the extreme conditions in which they live, but also a testament to their resiliency, their ability to sustain daily life, and that to me is inspiring. Even as my prevailing feeling is one of anger and sadness at what they're having to go through. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. And if you're just joining us, we're talking with Sacramento-based journalist Martin Kuz, who spent the past year traveling to Ukraine, understanding the toll of the war. We're going to continue the conversation in just a moment. You're listening to Insight on your NPR station, CAP Radio. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. 
and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're continuing my conversation with Martin Kuz, a Sacramento-based journalist who spent the past year traveling to Ukraine to understand the toll of the Russian invasion on everyday Ukrainian lives. Martin just returned from his third reporting trip in the past 12 months. We sat down on Friday, the one year marking the start of the war. When you mention you know, kind of the last 12 months, and I look at the reporting that you've shared um, through your reporting in Sacktown Magazine and then also the Christian Science Monitor, but also on Twitter and on Facebook, you chronicle these daily lives and you capture these incredibly personal stories of Ukrainians. How did you meet each person that you profiled and really get them to open up and share intimate devastation and loss? Great credit goes to translators with whom I've worked who have helped me better understand where to find the stories to share with with readers. I do as much planning as I can before I go over and identify areas that I'm interested in visiting, but I rely very much on my translators to help me connect with uh, Ukrainians who are living their lives and I'm visiting from abroad and I show up and I start asking questions. And what I have found by and large is that Ukrainians want their story to be told. Uh, No matter how deep their suffering or how great their loss, uh, they they seem to have an understanding that to remain silent allows Russia to continue operating with impunity. And I think they don't want people to forget around the world what they're going through. And so when I visit a village like Kamianka, uh, about 80 miles from Kharkiv near the city of Izum, another town that experienced uh, horrible atrocities when Russians occupied uh, the area early in the war, Kamiak is a village of about 1,000 residents. Every single home is damaged or destroyed. It is considered a 100% loss. And yet there are still about 30 to 40 residents living in the area. And I met one man, Vasily, who was thrice victimized by the Russians, suffered a shrapnel wound uh, from artillery when his house was hit, later was hit in the head with a Kalashnikov by a drunk Russian soldier during the occupation. And then after Ukrainians had liberated Kamianka, Vasily, who was a farmer, was out clearing his fields of the war debris that the Russians had left behind, ammo boxes, um, there was incinerated tanks. uh, And he was simply trying to prepare his fields once again for planting and harvesting, and he stepped on a landmine and lost his left foot. And Vasily, in many ways, embodies the Ukrainian spirit. Here is a man who has uh, lost so much, and he doesn't doesn't wallow in self-pity. What saddens him is the suffering of his fellow Ukrainians. The only time that he broke down during our conversation was when he was recalling uh, the destruction of neighbors' homes, the screams of farm animals ripped open by artillery, uh, the death of one neighbor, 
a man who was left lying in his yard for weeks by the Russians. He doesn't he doesn't express any sorrow for himself. He's talking about resuming his farming as best he can while on crutches, uh, waiting for a prosthetic foot. And meeting people like that, their willingness to share these intimate, devastating stories with me, it, it feels then like a kind of uh, duty to bring those stories to a wider audience. And it's, again, thanks to the translators in Ukraine who also approach their work with a degree of sensitivity that can't be understated because they too, of course, are suffering. Every translator with whom I've worked has been separated from family. Some of their parents have had to evacuate. Childhood homes have been destroyed. So for them, it isn't simply a job. They're also trying to uh, share this narrative of Ukraine under siege with the wider world. You also shared another story of a mother and her daughter, Victoria and Olena. Um, you spoke with Olena because Victoria was killed. They lived a mile from each other and would walk to each other's homes on a regular basis. And Victoria didn't show up one day. And they would eventually, what you described, they, they found her body in a crude grave marked with wooden crosses with the number 76 next to it. What did Olena teach you about about that loss, losing her daughter at 52 years old. Her daughter was 52. Olena spoke with such eloquence about uh, her daughter and about the bond that they shared. And in one great respect, what she taught me was less what she actually said than the fact that she continued talking to me through her tears. She almost never stopped crying as we had our discussion, which probably lasted 45 minutes. So the pain is right there before you. And yet she wants to tell the story uh, of Victoria. And there is so much in that. There is the warmth of a mother, pain of a mother. But it also summarizes the the suffering of a nation. And this goes back to that idea that every Ukrainian uh, has felt loss to one degree or another. And what I learned from Olena, who grew up in the Soviet era, who understands Russian oppression going back decades, is the need for Ukraine to stand free and independent of Russian oppression. She has paid a grave price uh, as a Ukrainian, and the Ukrainian people have done nothing more than simply try to live free, and for that they're paying the ultimate price. And Olena, she's not about to submit to Putin, uh, to the Russian regime. In fact, she's ever more defiant. And so beneath all of that pain is this resolve of steel that you can kill us, you can physically remove people from our lives, but you cannot douse the Ukrainian spirit. And it wasn't her pronouncing that in grand terms. It is in that understated way of sharing her loss, 
but also with that determination that she will go on and that her people will go on. So you see in those discussions uh, the personal dimension of what Ukrainians are enduring. But if you take a step back, you can also see some of those larger themes. Yeah. What struck me was the people that you spoke with, they're all older. You know, um, Vasily is 65, Olena is older, and you spoke with Maria, who's 80 years old. And you touch upon this reality that they really have lived this trajectory uh, of what it is to be Ukrainian, even before it was a country, when it was part of the Soviet Union. When learning about Maria, who, when reading from your reporting, she lives in her summer kitchen after a rocket hit and destroyed her home. Does she have that same fierce stubbornness, and understandably so, of staying in her home even when it doesn't even exist anymore. Absolutely. One aspect of her story that I didn't share is that she has a son who is married, and they lived with Maria in Petropavlivka, which at the moment is experiencing a horrific shelling. Um, We spoke as these enormous booms surrounded us. And Maria has, at this point, sadly, adapted to this terrible circumstance. Where she is so defiant, she has a son who actually left for Russia with his wife. They came to her after Maria's house had been destroyed by an artillery shell and simply said to her, we're leaving. You can come with us where you can stay. And Maria said, I'm not leaving. And you see in that decision, not only the reality of a woman who is 80 years old and for whom making that kind of transition would be uh, difficult. It is because she's Ukrainian. She refuses to set foot in Russia again. She has cut off contact not only with her son, but with other relatives and friends who are in Russia who continue to deny that the war is something that Russia has perpetrated upon the Ukrainian people. Uh, there is there is a closed media ecosystem in Russia, and that propaganda is virulent and sort of comprehensive. And so... A lot of Russian people have no idea that this is Putin's war of aggression. And so when Maria tries to educate, or had tried to educate people in, in Russia that she knew, she realized they believed the lie. And, and uh, not her lived experience, what she's experiencing. It's all fake news and from, from the perspective of, of Russian people. And... It's extraordinary extraordinary as a journalist to spend time with someone who has uh, lost her home, in effect lost her son and daughter-in-law, and and to think there are people, in effect millions of people around the world who don't believe the truth of what Maria is going through every day. I asked her, you know, you have this artillery going off around you all day long every day. How do you sleep? And she said, you get used to it. You know, with, with, with no fanfare, with no kind of ostentatiousness, she simply is saying, I will go on. And I, and I find that to be inspiring. And I find it incredible in that, I know, here in America, it's not to suggest for a moment that 
uh, everyone's life is easy or simple. But when you consider people getting frustrated about their Starbucks order being mixed up, and then you see this woman who's living in her summer kitchen, which is a room about the size of a walk-in closet. Uh, she has a bed, a couple of chairs, and a wood stove. And she's not about to give in to Russia, an 80-year-old uh, grandmother. And that, I think, is uh, sort of exemplifies that strong Ukrainian spirit and that resolve uh, to, to live free. You know, Maria captures a reality for a lot of Ukrainians, and that's the the fracturing of families, you know, when because of misinformation and disinformation. Did you get a sense collectively of the national mood, the morale as this war enters its second year with really no signs of it ending anytime soon? The people that I've met throughout the past year have almost almost to a person suffered a kind of loss. In some cases, it has been uh, obvious. They they have lost a loved one, perhaps someone who is serving in the Ukrainian military or with the Territorial Defense Force, a volunteer, uh, a volunteer force. In many cases, however, it's uh, more subtle. It's simply this breach that has uh, been created by this war. Ukrainians and Russians weren't by any means, one people, as Putin described them a summer before uh, he launched his invasion. But there was a kinship, without question, and a shared history. Um, now, there is a demarcation, and there is a feeling that Ukraine gained its independence in 1991 after uh, the Soviet Union broke apart. But as one person said to me, we knew even then that we would likely have to face Russia in war, that there would have to be blood before we fully claimed our independence. And so much blood has been shed in the past year, and it hasn't for, I think, a moment and for a person dimmed the resolve of Ukrainians uh, to continue fighting. Is there a weariness without question? Uh, there is extreme deprivation. But there is not a sense of capitulation. Um, I think that perhaps the greatest miscalculation of this entire war is Putin's belief that Ukrainians would welcome the Russian invaders, that they would, quote, feel liberated. Um, quite the opposite. And that underlies all the suffering, all the destruction, all the loss underneath all of that, uh, or perhaps above all of that, is this understanding that Ukraine will not acquiesce. And I don't think that has changed from a year ago. In fact, I would argue that it has uh, actually been fortified by military gains, but also by the fact that a year later, uh, Ukraine is still standing, is standing proud. And uh, now the world knows Ukraine. And that was something that frustrated my father for many years was the sense that people thought of Ukraine as just part of the Soviet Union, not as an independent nation. Now the world knows, for the worst reason possible, but the world knows, and I think moving forward, Ukraine, even in the midst of war, can see a different kind of future for itself. And it, I think, is that uh, glimmer of hope that helps sort of fortify their resolve. 
I think it's also important to note that given you're a freelance and independent journalist, covering a war on your own is not only comes with dangers, it's also expensive. And this wouldn't have been possible without the support of people donating to make this possible. I was looking at your GoFundMe and you had a goal of like $3,000 to cover some of the travel expenses, not all, but the donations surpassed that amount by fivefold, $15,000. What does that mean to you? What does that say to you? Uh, difficult to find words to express the gratitude. I think it's fair to say I'm, I sit before you utterly humbled. I think it reflects two things. One is compassion and concern for Ukrainians, this desire to try to help in whatever way possible. And then I think people understand that there is a connection between sustaining Western support and continuing to tell the story of Ukraine and, and everyday Ukrainians. To some extent, it might also be a little bit of faith in me um, and a feeling that I can share those stories, find those stories and share those stories. Um, I was stunned by the response. I had never expected that kind of uh, generosity. What I have found in those exchanges with people who have generously contributed is a, is a, uh, a kind of empathy that we sometimes lose sight of, empathy for people on the other side of the world uh, who we likely will never meet, but that we want to somehow help and reach out. We saw this again recently with the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. Um, there is one important difference, and that that, that is uh, the war, any war, is a man-made disaster. And I think there is this really strong sense that storytelling is essential to kind of displaying the humanity within Ukraine that helps us realize that this isn't simply about uh, tanks and fighter jets and soldiers on the battlefield. This is about average people like you and me trying to survive the day and trying to imagine a future for children and grandchildren. And I think that desire uh, is something that a lot of people actually share, that they want to continue to read these stories. So I am the most surprised at the uh, number of contributions that came in and the, and the amount. And it has made the reporting possible, and it has further deepen this, I this idea for me that the story is so personal. It has only uh, made me more determined to continue telling the story of Ukraine. You just landed back in the States, but are you already thinking about returning? I am. I think that uh, probably in April or May is when I'll make my next trip. And the hope then is to uh, stay a little bit longer and again, visit areas that I haven't been to before, uh, probably try to get to the south um, and just get a sense of what is happening in those areas as they attempt to recover and, uh, again, to try to survive as this war goes on. I would, like to, I would like to think that I could go back in the spring and it would be a story of Ukrainian victory. And while I do think that Ukraine will prevail in the long run, uh, I'm not 
convinced that it will happen sooner rather than later. So yes, I think there will be at least one more trip this year and perhaps two. Uh, and again, that's because of the, the generosity of people to this GoFundMe campaign. It just seems like your mind and your heart is still in Ukraine, even though you're back here in Sacramento. That's an accurate description. Uh, it's a sense of living between worlds. And um, I, f- I find, I have always found journalism, as I'm sure you have, to be something that provides a sense of purpose. Uh, for me, it is how I try to give back. And with Ukraine, because it's where my father lived and where he lost so much, there has always been a sense of a kind of unresolved debt, something that I think I vaguely was aware of but didn't fully understand. Uh, The war has brought that into much sharper focus. And uh, that's, again, the worst reason why why there should be a kind of clarity to my thinking, but it has made me determined to devote as much time as I can in whatever time I have left to to telling the story of Ukraine, uh, both while it is caught within war and then what Ukraine will look like beyond war. I do think Ukraine will emerge victorious. I think they will live free and, and independently, but not without terrific cost. And what people maybe sometimes forget is that when the war, quote, ends, it doesn't really end. Not only is there the, the physical rebuilding of a nation and a sort of reassembling of day-to-day life, but there is the, the long tail of psychological trauma. And part of the reporting in this, uh, on this trip was looking at this idea of historical remembrance, this notion that Ukraine has suffered throughout its history for centuries. And that includes what my father went through during World War II. Sadly, it's something that's going to continue for decades ahead. And I feel it's my duty as a Ukrainian American to continue to share that story and to remind people about Ukraine and Ukrainians and why it matters that a free, independent, sovereign nation was invaded by a hostile force. Martin, thank you so much. Thank you, Vicki. Martin Coos is a Sacramento-based journalist who spent the past year traveling to Ukraine to understand the toll of the Russian invasion on everyday Ukrainian lives. Still ahead, we'll meet a Black student-centric organization working to uplift youth and help them succeed in California through mentorship and resources for success. You're listening to Insight here on CAP Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. We're back in just a moment. Hi there. If you're enjoying Insight, we think you'll love our podcast, Blue Dot, with your host, that's me, Dave Shlom. Every week, we take a deep dive into science and nature, from the search for life beyond our pale blue dot in the vastness of space to the ecosystems we all depend on. You never know what you'll hear from the physics of Leonardo da Vinci to communications with humpback whales. Check out Blue Dot wherever you get your podcasts. 
At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Insight on Cap Radio. I'm your host, Vicki Gonzalez. African-American and Black students in California face a significant gap in academic achievement compared to their peers. According to recent data from the California Department of Education from this year, roughly 30 percent of Black students in the state met English language arts standards. Roughly 16 percent met the standard for math. Black Students of California United is a nonprofit working to help address these challenges that students face today, with an emphasis on providing resources for success and mental health support. Dr. Angela Barfield is one of the co-founders of BSCU and joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. How are you, Vicki? Doing wonderful. Thank you for making the time. You are one of four co-founders of BSCU. What brought you all together to create this nonprofit? You know, believe it or not, it was the stats that you speak of just previously, but also it's the young people who have a desire to find success in the state that they call home. Uh, myself, Miss um, Deborah Watkins, Miss Jacqueline McFarland, McFarland, and uh, Dr. Angela Williams. You know, we sat down one Saturday and we hammered it out with the insight of those some a handful of young students that said we want a voice and we want to make sure that life gets better for kids that look like us. And now it's seven years and counting that this nonprofit (laughs) has been around. But your passion for education, I'm sure, predates that by years and years. What sparked your passion for pursuing a career in education? Believe it or not, it was my own children. Um, I was a basketball coach at the beginning of all of this and uh, started working in a district in the Central Valley and saw a need that Black children had in the sense of a sense of belonging um, and being respected and valued and a sense of understanding uh, of their presence in classrooms today. And so um, over time, uh, we just dis- I decided that there's more to this than just being a mom. I owe it to parents who are disengaged with the system because of traumas that they've endured uh, from the system, as well as the students themselves, to dig in and help districts and administrations understand that Black children are not the data that they see, that they are actually great contributors along with the predecessors and their ancestors that came before them, that can really build um, an educational system that works for all. Yeah, I mean, you hit a really key point that these experiences don't just encapsulate the student body, but student bodies of the past. And I would imagine there were personal experiences for you as a student that that were really formative and shaped the work that you wanted to do and are doing across classrooms and school districts in California. Absolutely. Along with, you know, all of the the four co-founders, Jacqueline McFadden was a 30 year educator. Um, and was, I think, a teacher of the year. And then you have Deborah Watkins, who is an executive director for our Black Education Network, which is a national organization that is working to, you know, elevate Black scholars and to bring um, relevant education to not just Black students who definitely need it, because, you know, we have been disconnected from our culture and our heritage throughout this system. Um, But more than that, to ensure that this country begins to understand is that our ancestors did a lot 
They paid the price. They brought a lot to this place. And, you know, but we need to make sure that our young people understand and value their history for themselves so that they can elevate out of these roots, you know, traumatic, systemic, educational, um, you know, low expectations that are taking them down. So that's why this organization was formed. That's why these young people continue to lead us to make the right decisions on their behalf. Um, and we do our best to find the funding so we can fund those things for them. When it comes to the resources and, and what you provide to students in school districts, what makes Black Students of California United unique? Um, I think we're unique because we are Black-led. Um, our students lead us and we're relevant, right? We don't sugarcoat anything. Um, we ensure that our young people understand the value of their Blackness, that they understand that Black excellence is not just a term, it's a way of life. Um, we need them to understand that our ancestors put a lot out in order and saw them, right, in, in the sense of all of these uh, moments that they're enduring, that this is nothing new and that they can be resilient and fight through. Um, we work within the districts to build affinity spaces, which are called Black Student Unions, right? People think that they're just clubs. They're more than just clubs. These are affinity groups. These are places where young people go, one, to feel safe, to find and to affirm themselves. But more than that, they're there to help the districts see and hear them so that they can build things on their campus that support their growth. Um, and we think that that's important. And that's what makes us different, I believe, from a lot of other organizations is that we're grassroots, but we're right in the midst and we work with the student, meeting them at their need. We are truly equity focused. Yeah, you're teaching students empowerment at a, at a very young age. Yes, uh, actually, you know, we when we started BSCU, it was just high schools. Uh, we started with 23 of them. Now we're at 160 schools. We've incorporated middle schools because some of our districts were saying, hey, you know, can you help us start a little bit earlier? You know, maybe, you know, to help support some of the things we want to do. And we have one district right now that's uh, piloting elementary school black student unions. And we're starting to see some really great things happening at the lower level. And we know that over time, we're going to see that it's just going to bring those numbers, all those data points that everybody wants to, you know, put on black students, you're going to see that those numbers are going to increase and our black students can truly do great things. Given that this August will mark seven years since your nonprofit, BSCU, was founded, I would imagine a lot. Uh, there's one thing having an idea and a passion and coming together with three other co-founders and coming up with an idea for a nonprofit. But how has your organization evolved over the course of these seven years? Man, I, again, you know, starting with 23 schools um, and now to be at 160 is humongous. Um, we have schools as far south as San Diego. Um, as far north as, you know, San Francisco and then east and west as well. Um, we have built partnerships with our uh, secondary and post-secondary partner institutions, so our CSUs, our UCs, our private universities. Um, our young people get to see the world, too. You know, we have an immersion program where they go and visit. Uh, they were in Washington, D.C. last year. Um, visiting HBCUs and the National Museum. And year to that, they were at the Jubilee for the Edmund Pettus Bridge. They actually got to see John Lewis at his last outing um, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I mean, you talk about life changing, right? We have to expose them to the best of their culture. Um, and that's what we seek out to do because 
Otherwise, they probably won't get those opportunities. So leadership is important. We want them to understand that they have to advocate for themselves and they have to speak up because we cannot expect for educators in the system to understand what they need if their voices aren't elevated and they're not putting it out there for them to hear and see. Given that you're actually, you know, letting students lead and listening to them and, and starting with them, they, they are the source of all of this. I mean, the past three years has just disrupted classrooms, and that's really an understatement. What are students telling you about their needs now and the challenges that they're trying to overcome? What gets lost in this conversation? Well, you know, mental health, mental health, mental health, that's the that's what we hear right now. Um, our health ambassadors, which is one of the legs of our youth leadership um, work, they are telling us the importance of connection. Um, losing two years to COVID knocked everyone uh, for a loop, but it really did some harm to our Black students. Um, and so building these networks and connections just to be able to talk, right? Um, to be able to say, I don't know what's wrong. I don't, I don't understand the way I feel. Um, is important. Uh, and the work that they're doing um, right now with even it's virtual, as much as we all say we have Zoom burnout, <laughs> these young people are using it to their advantage so that they can encourage one another um, and, and really get us to understand that the way it affects you is not the way it affects us. And this is what we're hearing from our peers. And this is how we feel. The, this is the direction that we think we should be able to go in in order to build capacity in ourselves to be better students, better leaders, better community, um, you know, leaders and so forth. So, um, yeah. You mentioned health ambassadors. How does that work? What do they do? So our health ambassadors were uh, formed as a part of the base work, and they are a group of youth leaders that come together to try to understand and see and hear from their peers of things that are necessary, like what's happening at your school site that could be causing you trauma or harm mentally? And then what are some things we can do? So this year, you know, we do an annual conference every year. So this year we are partnering with UC Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. um, our keynote speaker is Dr. Angela Davis. Believe right. it or not, and, our kids are And she's a professor at the university at, at Santa Cruz, correct. right? Correct. And so um, the kids said, you know what, Dr. Barfield, can we do a mental health um, afternoon session where we can all come in, where we can do some things that center us and that's positive for us. So this year they're going to be doing drumming, journaling, um, uh, um, and dancing and things that are just mellowing. And then they wanted to take a, a direct look and moment in time to be with their adult advisors that are doing this work. So this is usually faculty in the schools to show them how much they appreciate them. Um, as their adult advisors and seeing what they're enduring at the school sites as well. So it's going to be a come together moment um, for all of them, but it's really about self-care and what matters. How do we take care of us so that we can continue this journey of excellence together so that those that are coming behind us have something to grasp a hold of and be proud of? Yeah, and I would imagine even more impactful given that you're providing a network of peers and mentors. Absolutely. And we're so grateful to the partners that we have um, in this work. Again, uh, we are a nonprofit, so everything is funding, 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 and it is tough uh, to find funding. Um, we've been turned down for funds, believe it or not, because we have Black in our name. Uh, we've been told that our name comes off a little militant or scary, and it's like, these are Black children. What is militant and scary about Black children, right? 
Um, so we are always seeking funding and support so that we can continue this work to build capacity in our young leaders because they're going to lead us one day. Um, our first cohort of students, Vicki, believe it or not, they're graduating from college this year. Oh, um, and yeah. so, you know, and so we did, I think um, our EdSource story had one of our uh, youth leaders who's, he's going to impact the world. So we're proud of BSCU and the work that it does and how we can help and support our school districts as a whole in, in serving our black students. Given that you started with high school students and, and you're going to be marking seven years, so you're really starting to see these students graduate from college <laughs> and really start this this chapter in adulthood. I mean, this is really a full circle moment, you know, starting from an idea and a passion to actually seeing the results in every in everyday lives that are going to affect our communities. Absolutely. And it's something that I think our communities need to embrace and be proud of with us in the sense that, you know, society puts tags and stereotypes on a lot of students in, you know, in our society. However, these students are saying, look, we're, we're trying to help you help us. Right. Don't assume that you know what we need. Listen to us. You know, our leaders are here for us. Respect us. Give us relevance you know, in the classroom spaces, you know, they're asking their teachers, respect us, you know, lift the expect level of expectation for us. We can meet it. Any Black student, regardless of grade level, Vicki, they can meet any level of expectation that anyone gives them. They're asking that you elevate it like you do everyone else so that they can find the same successes. Yeah. And a grade is only one limiting metric of, of what someone can do with their life. Finally, in the last you know, minute yeah. or so that we have, how can someone get involved or, or learn more about B- BSCU, Black Students of California United? So we are online. We have our website, which is www.blackstudentscu.us. Um, we are always looking for funding partners. Um, you can even, you know, see our list of schools. If you're in an area where there is a school that is in a district um, that you reside in, support that group. Support, reach out to that advisor, reach out to that district because, you know, for the districts to invest in these young people to be a part of our organization and allow us to work with them is a huge undertaking. Um, and so we just ask that you support these young people when they're doing fundraisers or if they're doing something in the community, just stop by and tell them, thank you for being the best you you could be. Um, and so truly, this is a labor of love for all of us, our board members, um, our board president, who is just, I mean, always stomping the ground on behalf of Black students. We're here and we want to work in every district in California if we can. We are here to support um, them so that they too can find success with every student that they have. Dr. Angela Barfield is a co-founder of Black Students of California United. Thank you so much for the time. It's my pleasure. Have a great day. You too. That is it for Insight Today. Have a great day, everyone. I'm Vicki Gonzalez. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.